Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Talking Flicks podcast. Today we are talking all about movie trilogies, but before we get stuck into that, I do have to kindly ask you guys to leave a review on this podcast and go follow us at Talking Flicks on Instagram as well, as it really does help grow the show, help boost my quality of content for you guys, and it's just the nicest thing you guys can do for me to support this podcast. But without further ado, let's get into the point of this episode, which is the best movie trilogies of all time. So before we get into talking about what my favorite trilogies are, I do want to go over what makes a good trilogy. So the first thing that comes to mind when I think of what makes a really good trilogy is it has to be quality all the way through. There can't be one weak film to what qualify as the best trilogy of all time. It can't have one bad film. I don't care if the other two are incredible. The other two are the greatest movies of all time. If there is one bad movie, to me, that ruins the trilogy because as standalone films, they can be good. But as a trilogy, the whole thing has to be solid. The whole trilogy has to be good because you're only as strong as your weakest link in my opinion so if one movie drops the ball that drops the ball for the whole trilogy so there are a lot of trilogies out there where the first two movies were great and the third one was just a money grab and to me that ruins it that unqualifies it from being up there as one of the best trilogies of all time because one movie just wasn't up to scratch now the second bit of criteria for what makes a good trilogy is it has to grow and develop in each movie. In my opinion, I feel like the best trilogies kind of evolve and change and develop and grow in filmmaking ability and also in plot and storyline as well. There has to be some sort of flow and change that allows it to keep it fresh. You know, when you go and watch the second film, like a sequel or the third movie, there has to be something new to it because as much as we always say, oh, why couldn't they have made it just like the first one or I wish they would go back to the way they used to tell that story, in my opinion, it has to change somewhat because even though we say that, if we were to see the same story exactly the same twice, we would just get bored. And that's why some something like the Scream franchise where they keep it quite similar, but change and tweak little things here and there has been able to stay so successful because they do that, because it's always fresh, because it's new, whether that means new characters, whether that means that there's a common trope in the first two movies, but in the third movie, you kind of throw that off or throw that out the out the way of the film. In my opinion, it has to keep it fresh. It has to stay different and develop and grow as the trilogy unfolds. And the third bit of criteria is it has to have some sort of a cultural or filmmaking impact. In my opinion, the best trilogies of all time, whether they impact pop culture or whether they impact filmmaking doesn't matter, but they have to do one or the other. In order to be up there as the best movie of all time or best trilogy of all time or best franchise, it has to make some sort of a difference to films following it or to society as a whole. Because at the end of the day, what are movies? They're stories and they're art. And art is meant to inspire and ignite change and change something to do with society, something to do with culture. And maybe if the movie isn't huge, but it does change how films are made from that point on, it still had that great impact. 
And so in order to be up there as one of the best movies or the best trilogies, there has to be some sort of an impact because at the end of the day, that's what movies are there to do. That That's what art is there to do. It has to change something. It has to ignite some sort of change in the world or impact something in that way. So in my opinion, the best trilogies of all time impact culture or impact filmmaking in a positive way, or some of them impact both. And we'll get into some of those later. And the next bit of criteria is it has to have a sense of uniqueness about it. Whether that's the world they built, whether that's the character themselves, there has to be something unique, something we've never seen before. Because there are a lot of franchises out there, there are a lot of trilogies out there that are pretty run-of-the-mill. You know, we've seen similar stories before, similar types of characters, and yeah, it's entertaining, but because we've seen it before, it just unqualifies it from being up there as the greatest of all time because it needs to be unique. It needs to be fresh, a different take in some sort of a way. Like, I love the Kingsman franchise, and they're looking to do a third Kingsman movie. However, it's so similar to a lot of other spy movies that it downgrades it in a way. It kind of... Even though the movies are good, they're not as good in my opinion because they're just not unique. There needs to be something really unique and fresh about a franchise or a trilogy in order for it to have that feeling of being one of the best of all time. Because there are so many great trilogies out there, but they're so similar to other ones that although they're good and they're made well and maybe they have good performances and actors, they're just they can't qualify as the best of all time because they're just not unique. You know, you can get the same feeling from watching some of of those trilogies out there if you watch another trilogy or there are certain movies where you can get the exact same feeling by watching another film. doesn't mean it's not good. It just means it's not unique. And that, to me, doesn't allow that film or trilogy to qualify as being one of the best of all time. So now that we've gotten past the criteria, now that we've gotten past what I use to judge my trilogies on and judge what I view as a good trilogy, let's get in to my favorite trilogies. Now I've chosen four and they were the first four that came to my head and I tried to choose four different trilogies that were very different from each other and they're not in any specific order. These are just to me, my top four, because they were the first four that came to my head. They're all unique. They're all different. There are some other great trilogies, so don't attack me about what I chose because I know I'm leaving out some, but if I was to mention every great trilogy that I know of, this podcast episode would go all day. It'd be a 12-hour episode, and none of us want that, so I just chose the first four that popped in my head as long as they were all different from each other and all unique. So in no specific order, the first trilogy that I chose was the Before Trilogy. Now, a lot of people would know the Before Trilogy and a lot of people wouldn't. It's a trilogy about two people. They start off as young in the first movie. They meet on a train. They end up sparking a little bit of a romance and they spend a day walking around Vienna, getting to know each other. But it's really interesting because in each of the films, especially the first one, there's no real plot. It's just them talking and you can feel this relationship building between them. They're getting comfortable with each other, getting to know each other, and they clearly are into each other sexually. And it's really interesting because there really isn't a plot. But what it's able to do is, I guess, play on your mind in a way. It kind of creates this fantastical world where 
it's a situation that a lot of people would like to be in, if that makes sense. So it's so real. It's so grounded in reality. It's just two people meet on a train. There's no magical element. They just meet, they strike up a great conversation, and then they choose to spend a day walking around together in Vienna. And they get to know each other, and then they hook up that night. Now, that's like a situation that everyone sort of imagines. You know, if you're sitting on a train and you see someone attractive, um, a lot of people, they picture what my life would be like with them or what would a day be like with them. Even though you don't know them from a bar of soap, you just automatically think of how would they change my life? Where would I go from here? How would our relationship work? And this movie and this trilogy as a whole plays on that. It plays on, it knows that the audience has situations in their head where they wish that would happen. However, that stuff just, it can happen, but very rarely. And so this movie, although it seems really realistic and seems really grounded in reality, it is quite fantastical. It is sort of magical in a way. It transports you to this world which looks completely identical to yours. However, Clearly, it's a little different. It's a little heightened. And this relationship budding is something that we all wished would happen, but it's just not reality. That stuff really doesn't happen. And I really love that about this film because it's so simple. It's so real, raw, uncut. It's just two people chatting away, hardly any plot. But it gives you this magical feeling, this feeling of, wow, I wished a place like that existed. Although it does exist, it's reality, but it's also not at the same time. And I really love that about this movie, the first one before Sunrise. And the whole trilogy as a whole is just incredibly simple, yet still complex in its themes. So what's weird about this trilogy is that Although it's so simple and it's two people just chatting away. The first movie, they meet on a train, they chat. The second movie, they bump into each other in Paris. They walk around all day and they chat. The third movie, they're now married and they go away on a holiday. And that day, they just walk around Greece and they chat. So, although it's so simple, it's two people talking for basically the whole trilogy it's so complex in its themes, in its relationship themes, in the themes of what they talk about. They get into politics, they get into philosophy, they talk about art, different books, different uh, ways of thinking about life, while also you can also see this relationship dynamic between them changing and evolving over time. So while the plot remains so simple, two people walking around a street talking, between them, the relationship dynamic and the conversation that they're having is so complex. And it really flips writing on its head because a lot of screenwriting and a lot of screenwriters say that a screenplay is just a blueprint for a movie, right? You write down, okay, uh, we fade in from here, this car crashes into this car, this actor screams, they turn this way. However, in the script for these movies... It's not a blueprint at all. It's literally just a conversation. There's hardly any action. They're just walking down a street. Then they turn a corner, turn a corner. Nothing happens. There is no plot. There is no real physical climax on the exterior. But on the interior, as in their mind and their relationship dynamic, that's where the heightened reality comes. That's when the the climax comes because they build up. They might argue at this point. Then they realize that, you know, they were arguing a stupid point to begin with. So it's really interesting. And the whole script is just 
Uh, Jesse says one word. I'm not saying myself. The character's name is Jesse. Jesse says one word. Then Celine says another line. Then Jesse responds. Celine responds. And that's the whole script. There really isn't any action at all. And I've read the script for all three of these movies. There isn't much action. The scene doesn't really change. There aren't really any scenes, if that makes sense. They're just walking around for like 90 minutes to two hours talking. And that's it. But although it's so simple and there's no plot, it still remains interesting. And it's so different to any other screenplay that you would ever read. And the idea of it seems kind of boring. It's like a Seinfeld situation. It's a movie about nothing in a way. However, it's a movie about everything because they touch on politics. They touch on social issues, relationship dynamics. Uh, It's very, very interesting and very complex while remaining very simple at the same time. And... There's a lot of growth in each movie, and I love that because although it remains simple, like I've said, there still is so much growth in their relationship, and it changes from movie to movie as they get older as well, and they have more life experience, they're less naive about it, and the whole movie dynamic changes from each movie to represent the age they're at. So in the first movie, it's incredibly naive, it's incredibly immature, it's it's fantasy, it's like, wow, this is such a great situation, and, and they're just really in touch with their emotions, and they're not thinking much with their head, they're more thinking with their body, as a young person does. Then in the second movie, 10 years later, they bump into each other in Paris after Jesse has written a book about the encounter they had. And he's on a book tour, he's in Paris, and they bump into each other and they have a conversation that day. However, that day when they have their conversation, it's so different. That physical uh, thought, that without thinking, just doing and just acting isn't really there anymore. They've had more life experience, they're a little older, they're more focused on their career, They've had more heartbreak and they're a little more hardened and they think things through a little more. So in the second movie, you start to see how the mind comes into play and how they second guess things and how they think things through rather than in the beginning where they wouldn't think about what was going to happen tomorrow or next week. They were just thinking in the now. In the second movie, they're completely thinking about, well, what about next week? What about this? How would this impact that? They're constantly thinking ahead, thinking in the future as someone in their late 30s, early 40s does, as they're a little more hardened, they know not to to act without thinking, and so they allow their mind to get in the way, in a sense. And then in the third movie, they've now gotten married. They've got a child, uh, two children, actually. They're on a holiday. They're a lot older, a lot more mature, and the conversations they have are a lot more mature, and it's about how that physical Uh, impact they used to have on each other is now worn away. They've been together for 10 years, 15 years, married, and that whole, you know, butterflies in the stomach thing when you're around them, that's not there anymore. That romantic period, it's not there anymore. They're just so comfortable with one another, but then they touch and they get into what true love really is. And it it is that, you know, when you've been married 15, 20 years, of course your relationship dynamic changes, but that doesn't mean your love is lost. It just means you have a deeper newfound love. And I really, I really love that about this trilogy is it? it's so smart. It's so intelligent in getting into the nitty gritty, the nuances of what a relationship is really like. Because a lot of Hollywood movies can portray this image of a relationship of you're just so in love, you can't keep your hands off each other. And It's constantly fresh. It's constantly exciting. And of course, life can't be like that. You can't have a 50-year marriage and just every day be this new, exciting adventure with one another. Life gets in the way. But 
because you love each other, you're able to stay together and work through your issues. And I really enjoyed that. And Richard Linklater, who directed and wrote the whole trilogy himself, he based it around his own life at the time. His relationship at the time in the first movie, he allows to to portray, to, to play into how he wrote the movie. Then in the second movie, he's now 10 years older. He's lived a little more. He allows what his thought process is about love to seep into that movie. And he wasn't thinking about the third movie. And then 10, 15 years later, he writes the third movie and he allows the way he views love now, being in a marriage for 10 years, to seep into that film. So without thinking about the next movie by just writing about what he knows in the moment at that time it allows the movies to connect and flow in a way that others don't because it's real he's writing the first movie as someone who's in his late 20s so it's going to have that immature feel because he's writing exactly what he knows but he's the one person he's the one man who wrote this film so that's kind of the through line because 10 years later he's the same person with the same writing style but writing what he knows in that moment so by allowing himself to not think about what he wrote in the past and what he will write in the future and just writing what he knows now, it allows it to connect because it's connected through him. Richard Linklater is like the only through line throughout all three movies, but by doing that, it almost allows it to flow and and tick over more seamless than a lot of other trilogies do. And I really think that's intelligent. I think that's a good lesson that a lot of writers and artists can take from it is that by writing what you know in this moment, that will be the best writing you can do. I I honestly believe that. I think if you write or paint or draw, whatever you do in art, just do exactly what you know, exactly what you feel now, and don't worry about the future or the past or what people will think, and that will allow your work to be more impactful, more real, and just better work in general. So I really love that about the Before trilogy and just the way that it fleshed out a relationship. I've never seen a trilogy or a movie flesh out a relationship as well as the Before Trilogy, because at the end of the day, it's a trilogy about two people having a conversation. No one would think that. Who thinks you can build a franchise and make a lot of money off three movies of just two people, one relationship, they're just chatting, they're just talking, hardly any plot, hardly any scenes, no explosions, nothing, just two people talking. That's it for three films. But by doing that, they're able to get into the micro nuances of relationships. And that's super interesting to me. And I think many other people, that's why the trilogy was so successful because they got into, they just fleshed out a relationship in a way that you've never seen before on screen. And I love that about the Before Trilogy. And moving on to the second trilogy that I've chosen, and this is very different, but it's Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. Now, This doesn't get as much credit as it should for being the birth of the new age superhero movies. We see what the superhero genre has become, what the MCU has become, Marvel, everything in the last 10 years. But up until the early 2000s when Tobey Maguire made his debut as Spider-Man, no superhero movies were really seen as cinema or seen as good films until uh, Sam Raimi made uh, made the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man trilogy And all of a sudden, people went, whoa, superhero movies can be like normal movies. They can be like actual cinema, touching on uh, different aspects of what cinema touches on, different aspects of society, of life, and, and 
growing this character in a smart, intellectual way, being a good screenplay in itself, good cinematography, good performances. It doesn't all just have to be Spider-Man swoops in and saves the day and that's it. And it was the first time that people really viewed superhero movies as good films. And I would argue it was probably the first time that anyone who wasn't a comic fan went to go watch a superhero movie and enjoyed it. I think there would have been heaps of parents out there who took their kid to see uh, Spider-Man. They would have sat down and watched it, not expecting much, only expecting their kid to enjoy it, and they would have enjoyed the movie. And they would have gone, whoa, I've never seen a superhero movie like this before. Spider-Man does not get the credit it deserves for being that catalyst for what was to come in in the last 20 years of the superhero genre. For sure, it impacted Dark Knight in so many ways. It was the first movie, really, that that came to prove and show that superhero films could be good films, could be qualified as cinema, and also showed that a superhero can be fleshed out in a way to actually be a good character in cinema, to actually be an interesting character away from his powers, away from what he does when he's in the Spider-Man suit. Peter Parker's an interesting guy. He's an interesting character, and I think it really brought that comic nerd culture into pop culture. It made it cool. It was a cool, good movie. I don't think it gets the credit it deserves one bit. And moving on from there as well, they're so timeless. The Spider-Man trilogy is just so timeless. There's a lot of other superhero films where as CGI progresses, as we move on, you don't really go back and watch it. It just doesn't look as good, doesn't have the same impact. But with Spider-Man, regardless if the CGI is nowhere near as good as it is now, They're very timeless films. You can always enjoy them. If I was to put on Spider-Man right now, I would enjoy it. I would have a fun day watching the Spider-Man trilogy. I don't think anyone talks about this when it comes to Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, but his character and the films he was a part of are just probably the most timeless superhero films out there. That and The Dark Knight would be the most timeless superhero movies. It's probably the most cinematic. It's the most grounded in reality of any superhero film. It's not overreaching. It's playing to exactly what it what it knows it is, to what the movie knows what it's meant to be, what it's meant to do, and it does that to a T. And it just makes the film incredibly timeless. And I don't think even if CGI gets so much better and it looks completely real, we'll still be able to go back and watch Spider-Man and enjoy that trilogy. So it deserves a lot more praise. It deserves a lot more credit for what it's done for cinema, for the superhero genre. I don't think people talk about Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man anywhere near as much as they should. But moving on from that to the next trilogy that I'm talking about, And that is the Bourne Trilogy. The Jason Bourne Trilogy is possibly the best trilogy of all time, in my opinion. In my opinion, it may be the best trilogy of all time. And it was so different. It was a spy film that wasn't this suave, uh, clean-cut, womanizer-type spy. It was dirty, it was gritty, it was real, it was rugged, there was a lot of handheld shots in there. It was just like one big fight after one another. He was actually getting hurt, getting dirty, and I really enjoyed that about Jason Bourne. I don't think we saw any spy movies up until that point uh, where... The spy wasn't this suave man in a suit. Jason Bourne was just like 
this army soldier ready for battle at all times, hardened and just really dirty, really gritty. And I loved it. You got so many handheld shots. It wasn't trying to be smooth, clean cut. It was great. And I think Jason Bourne really impacted a lot of the spy movies to come after that trilogy. If you look at Daniel Craig's James Bond, his James Bond films were so, so heavily impacted from Jason Bourne. He definitely took, well, not Daniel Craig, but the filmmakers behind Daniel Craig's Bond definitely took a lot of inspiration from Jason Bourne because Daniel Craig's James Bond all of a sudden became more dirty, became rugged, and was able to move between his suave persona and his dirty, more army-like military persona. And I really enjoy that. I think that works best for spy movies because it's not realistic that a spy isn't this dirty, uh, you know, gritty guy because at the end of the day, he's fighting, he's he's taking down people, killing people. He's not going to be this clean-cut guy all the time. That's not who he really is. He can scrub up well, he can dress well, but at the end of the day, the spy really should be this dirty, uh, militant-type character. And I don't think Jason Bourne gets nearly as much credit as to what it's done for Matt Damon's career. Jason Bourne completely changed Matt Damon's career because up until that point, he was seen as a great actor, a great screenwriter, you know, the indie films, those great small dramas. He was good in those movies, but he wasn't really seen as a big blockbuster movie star that could never be disappearing from Hollywood in a sense. You know, Matt Damon had that aura around him where, yeah, he was a great actor, but maybe another one will come along. But then Matt Damon did Jason Bourne and people went, holy crap, this guy's a movie star. He's a huge blockbuster movie star. His career is never going away. He's never leaving Hollywood. He's here to stay. I really think Jason Bourne cemented Matt Damon's career in a really strong way and just kind of engraved him into Hollywood, into pop culture in a way where he's not going anywhere anytime soon. And that's because of Jason Bourne. People don't talk about that. But, you know, if you look at Ben Affleck's career, he never got that Jason Bourne opportunity. And he had a pretty similar career with Matt Damon. And because he didn't get that Bourne type opportunity, he started to fizzle out of Hollywood a little bit. He was in and out. He wasn't doing as many movies. And then he did Argo. He won the Oscar and he was back into Hollywood. Whereas Matt Damon, the the calls never really stopped coming in. He was always getting films and that's because of Jason Bourne. It made him that Hollywood global superstar that he deserved to be. I really think Jason Bourne cemented Matt Damon's career. And on top of that, a funny story about Matt Damon and Jason Bourne and his career is that Matt Damon turned down Avatar for Jason Bourne. He already shot the first Jason Bourne movie. James Cameron came to him and said, hey, you're an action hero. You're a Hollywood superstar. I'd love for you to be an avatar. And he said that he thought the script looked bad. He thought the premise was horrible. And so he chose that he wanted to focus on Jason Bourne and keep all his focus on the Bourne trilogy. However, he was offered 10% of the revenue for Avatar, which would have meant that he would have made about $280 million if he took that contract with Avatar, which he didn't. He didn't think the movie would turn out well, and we all know how well Avatar turned out, how much money Matt Damon actually turned down for Jason Bourne. However, even though he lost all that money, I would say it was the smarter decision. I think the Bourne movies are better, and I also think that what the Bourne trilogy did for Matt Damon's career, Avatar wouldn't have done, because all you have to do is look at 
Sam Worthington's career, and it's nowhere near the level of Matt Damon's. Even though he was in Avatar, Avatar made him a global superstar, he doesn't get the types of roles, the types of movies, the types of attention that Matt Damon does. So I honestly think because the Bourne trilogy was seen as a better movie, it was seen as better cinematically, it made Matt Damon a lot bigger than Avatar would have done. Avatar would have made him a lot richer, but his career would have been better with Jason Bourne. So ultimately, I think Matt Damon made the right choice by going with Jason Bourne. And yeah, he lost a lot of money, but I think it was better for his career for sure. And moving on from that, I think Jason Bourne is possibly the best aeroplane movie. The best aeroplane trilogy franchise you can watch. Now, I catch a lot of flights uh, just... I like going on holidays, and as a kid, we used to live overseas, so yeah, I'm on planes a lot, and it's kind of hard to choose a good aeroplane film. You need something that'll be entertaining, that you can watch, maybe fall asleep, tune back in and keep watching, and when you've seen the Bourne trilogy already, I think they're so entertaining for a flight. The movies go so fast, even though they're like two hours long, it feels like 45 minutes when you watch them, because they're so action-packed, so entertaining. So it, in a way, shortens your flight, because you you lose about two hours of the flight if you watch the first movie, because it feels like 45 minutes, and then you can watch all three. That's six hours of entertaining of entertainment that makes the flight seem six hours shorter in a way, because they're just so fun, so entertaining. So another positive, which means nothing to how good the trilogy is, is the fact that the Jason Bourne trilogy is possibly the best films that you could watch on the in-flight entertainment system when you're going on a long-haul overseas flight. That's just my opinion. That's just something that helps me. I know a lot of people out there will be like, I don't care what movie I watch on a plane. That doesn't impact how good the movie is. But for me, it does. I watch a lot of movies on planes. So for me, it does make a difference. And moving on from that to the final trilogy that I'm going to be talking about, and that is The Godfather. Now, the reason why The Godfather came close but can't be listed as the best trilogy of all time is because Godfather Part 3 was weak. Godfather Part 3 wasn't good, but it is able to slip into my top four because the first two movies are arguably the greatest films of all time. I think it was the first time with The Godfather that we saw... The first film come out and be the greatest movie of all time. A lot of people said that was the best movie of all time. Then Godfather Part 2 came out and everyone said Godfather Part 2 is better than Godfather Part 1 and that Godfather Part 2 is the greatest movie of all time. That's never been done before. You've got the top two best movies of all time, arguably, in a trilogy. The first one came out, was seen as the best film of all time, and then the second one came out and was seen as better than the first one and was the best film of all time. In my opinion, Godfather Part 2 is the best movie of all time. So that's what's able to get the Godfather trilogy in my top four list. Although Part 3 was weak, Part 3 was not up to the Godfather standard at all. But if it was a standalone movie, it was pretty good. I'd give it like a 6.5 to a 7 out of 10. It's just when you compare it to two 10 out of 10 movies, it's just so, so much worse. And Sofia Coppola, I love her as a director, but stay away from acting. She is so bad in Godfather Part 3. And apart from that, it's the depth and the richness in the Godfather trilogy that makes it so good. I honestly think that there aren't any other trilogies out there where you have such good performances from the whole cast, great cinematography, great lighting, great writing, incredible writing, and incredible directing, and the soundtrack is so iconic and is so good. 
there isn't one weak element when it comes to the first two Godfather movies. And because it's just so rich in its filmmaking ability, that's what takes it up to that three or second on the list of best trilogies of all time because it's just so rich. I don't think there's any other trilogies out there that are as good in every element of filmmaking. If Godfather Part 3 was just like a a 7.5 out of 10, it would easily be the greatest trilogy of all time. It's just because Part 3 is weak that it drops it because the first two movies are just so good. I just don't think I've ever seen a movie come close to being as rich and deep as those first two films are. The subtext, the subplot, the character work, the character development, the relationship tension between characters, how well they flesh out all those relationships, the cinematography, the soundtrack, the lighting, everything was just incredible when it came to those first two movies. Nothing comes close. It is the peak of the cinema experience. It's the peak of the filmmaking art form, in my opinion. It is just so good in every single way. And it's just a shame that part three wasn't good. And another great thing that came with the Godfather trilogy is that it saved Marlon Brando's career because Marlon Brando was seen as like a a falling stock in Hollywood at the time. He had been in so many great movies like On the Waterfront and Streetcar Named Desire and then he wasn't seen as a star anymore. People were saying he was hard to work with. He was now fat and overweight and was too rich for his own good and wasn't working hard. However, uh, Francis Ford Coppola said, no, I need Marlon Brando in this movie. Even though the studio didn't want him in there, he got Marlon Brando in. And we all saw what Marlon Brando did with his character of Don Corleone in The Godfather. He was just terrific. He was incredible in The Godfather and possibly his best performance. And on top of that, it didn't just revive Marlon Brando's career, but The Godfather also birthed Al Pacino, arguably a top five actor of all time, possibly the greatest actor of all time in Al Pacino, was birthed by The Godfather. Warner Brothers didn't want him. The studios did not want Al Pacino in the film. They didn't see him as a movie star. They said, who is this guy? He's barely done anything. They wanted a few other actors in there that had more movie star quality that they would have said would bring in more money to the film. However, that definitely would have been the wrong choice because Al Pacino was incredible in this movie. And I'm so glad that Francis Ford Coppola said that he was willing to take a pay cut to get Al Pacino in the movie and that the movie wasn't being made without Al Pacino because he is Michael Corleone. He is incredible he is the perfect casting for that character and we all saw what he did with it he was incredible and the fact that the godfather had two of the greatest movies of all time saved marlon brando's career and birthed al pacino's career you can't have the godfather trilogy not in your top five or top four best trilogies of all time it's just incredible in every single way Now, that wraps up all the trilogies I'm talking about on this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to how I like to think of movie trilogies and franchises and and what makes a good trilogy to me. Let me know on my Instagram. Shoot me a DM at TalkingFlix what makes a good trilogy for you and what your top five trilogies are. Let me know there. Thanks for listening to the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I'll see you all on my next one.